Welcome to the Readings Podcast. My name's Tom Hoskins and I manage the State Library Shop for Readings. And today I'm speaking with the author Matthew Warren about his new book, Blackout, which is published by Firm Press. And it asks the question, how is energy-rich Australia running out of electricity? Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so first off, uh, just before we get into the book, um, you've got quite an interesting history when it comes to the energy market in Australia. So um, I'd love to hear about that and your history on, on both sides of the debate, really, and the perspective that that afforded you in writing this book. Yeah, I guess for most people it's unusual, um, although I don't, I don't think it's that unusual, but I've worked for the coal industry in New South Wales. I ran the Renewables in, the Renewable Energy Association for a few years and I've worked in electricity and energy policy for the last 15 years. So yeah. I've really worked on both sides of the fence and I, I think we, within the energy industry, you know, the industry sees energy as a machine yeah. and it sees it as a giant machine that we need to run every day and, and we run it well so that ordinary people don't have to worry about thinking mm. about it um, and that's really changed in the last decade with both the disruption of climate change and the arrival of these technologies like solar panels um, and we can talk about that but yeah so it's if the machine is now being uh, disrupted and that's okay because that's we need to make changes to it and everyone inside the machine simply sees it as okay so how do we meet the new criteria yeah decarbonizing it and keep the lights on and keep pebbles down and the problem we've had is this wave of political interference on that. So uh, both sides of politics, as we can see at the moment, are furiously sort of positioning themselves as if they sort of have some some ideology on the machine. And the mm. machine runners are just saying, could you please leave us alone, <laughs> set, set the targets for emissions, get, get out of our hair so we can do the things we need to do. And, of course, in, instead they offer more money for solar panels and they pretend to build coal-fired power stations. Yeah. And, and this crazy narrative runs at the sides, but it's disrupting the ability to do the job properly. So then talking about the machine, I mean, your book starts off uh, with the history of electricity generation uh, and uh, includes uh, the fact that Melbourne was actually quite an early pioneer in the uh, generation distribution of, of electricity. Um, but you, you sort of describe how the electricity in Australia developed into quite a, a comfortable arrangement post-war. And so this machine was, was running quite well or quite comfortably uh, right up until around the, uh, the millennium. What, what, uh, what changed or how was it so that it became so comfortable and then what changed? Yeah, it's funny too. I, I, I was um, – this, this comes up in the narrative around conservative and conservative thinking, particularly, say, with the Trump administration. Mm. And, and there's always the argument that, that uh, Steve Bannon, for example, wants to bring the United States back to an era, something around the 1950s to 1960s. You yeah. know? And there's this, this lovely romantic sense of the good old days, of course. And, yeah. and that certainly applied with electricity. We, you know, we had this kind of – uh, you're right. So Melbourne, Melbourne actually uh, was one of the first, well, the third city in the world to have an electricity grid, yeah, which wow. is, and that kind of reflects the gold rush times and yeah. the fast and loose money. Um, so, although ironically, it had a night football match three years before the grid. So oh, okay. <laughs> they they managed. You know, this tells you how much how footy mad Melbourne was. Yeah, we've was got back. our priorities really set out. <laughs> they had a, a night footy game. Got giant sort of arc lamps to to light the MCG, and they had mm. a couple of games by night in mm. 1879. So, and we still can't have a night grand. <laughs> it's um so anyway um but after the war basically so it, you know electricity's kind of played this weird role in our lives because we've never really we don't notice it but it's it's underpin everything so as a when i was a young student renting houses um old undeveloped houses from the mm. 1920s and 30s what we all remembered was they had no powerpoints yeah and that's because no one had anything to plug into them yeah 
And the, the post-war boom, the, you know, the features of it were many and varied, but from a consumer's perspective, they were this arrival of all these electricity supplying using consumer goods. Mm. So washing machines and, and televisions and, and record players. And, and, of course, and so the whole Western world was manufacturing and selling and listening and using these things. Yeah. And the electricity system was just growing like topsy to keep the power on to supply both the manufacture of them and the consumption of them. Yeah. So. And that was all groovy. Like in Australia, we basically have this weird setup where all the East Coast cities are situated right next to huge coal coal mines and, right, and, yeah. and coal deposits. I mean, Sydney is ringed by coal. Like mm. it's it's got it's ringed by coal mines all around it. And so, is it not only a geographically beautiful city, but from a from a sort of a development perspective, it's just it's a quite dream, handy. A dream, it? right? <laughs> So we built these giant coal-fired power stations too, mm. of course, which was logical. Everyone was doing the same thing if they could. And everyone, yep. and so you now have, you know, Nordic countries were building hydro. We were building coal. Everyone built whatever they had available to yeah. power their grids. Um, and that was just dandy until around the turn of the century when the, sci- and the scientists started reporting in, of course, on, on the risk of climate change. Yeah. And the other thing that's useful to note is uh, in this debate about climate change, and it's is this uh, um, James Hansen was working at Na- young scientist NASA atmospheric scientist reported to a congressional hearing in 1988 mm. that they said look we're, we're absolutely we're just about dead certain that greenhouse gas emissions are forcing climate right um, and that was you know and everyone rushed off George Bush senior everybody rushed off said right let's go and fix this thing that's fine and yep. it was completely bipartisan and nobody cared it was only when everyone realized how hard it was going to be <laughs> that that it was, everyone started to sort of to, to, to fragment yeah and the other thing is uh, just as useful is the environment groups didn't really pick up on this issue till a few years later. So mm. there was, I was checking the other day, there was a, a famous story in mid, the mid-90s. In 95, an oil rig in the North Sea called Brent Spa was owned by Shell and they went to sink that. Mm. Um, and Greenpeace had a very iconic demonstration. They, they occupied the, the oil rig mm. and they kept, the, they kept the, sort of the, the cops at bay and they managed to get Shell to to recycle it and de- decommission it. Right. Not once did Greenpeace even mention climate change. And this is in 1995. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. And the point being, scientists were... This isn't a, an, an activist-led scientific discovery. This yeah. is a science-led discovery. Yeah. And I think the problem with the debate on climate is that it's been reinvented for people who don't like some of the ideas of activism or the, or the sort of anti-capitalist principles being espoused and they therefore assume that ca- the climate change is just part of a deconstruction of capitalism and yeah. it's not and so that's that's riven the debate in australia for the past 10 15 years and so it still does how do you think then that the climate debate got sort of co-opted by by the activist side and the the science was put put aside or forgotten about or you know in some cases actively ignored i mean i think there's there's a whole there is a book which i've been tinkering with about sort of the rise of environmentalism you know and mm. and activism and and you know it's very hard to generalize about environmental activists because yeah. it is a broad church of individuals some who are incredibly passionate about the environment some who are wanted are very want to see it as a, as a vehicle to promote sort of fairly left-wing ideology and yep. everything in between and they're all separate and valid debates um and i think there's you know there's stuff that's claimed which is outrageously not true and 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 the purpose of activism is to try and get change and yeah. and it's an important part of debate in society and we should embrace it and accept it for what it is mm. i think now we're way past that point and in a sense if you look at the debate in the last decade 
really the green groups have been marginalised because yeah. it's, it's now a mainstream debate between, you know, most industry groups are calling for change. Yep. Uh, and the thing that really moved the dial on this, the two things that, that just crunched this debate and it has never set back since is in 2006, one was the millennial drought. Mm-hmm. And basically that's when ordinary mums and dads in suburban Australia realized, thought climate change was happening right now. They couldn't fill their pools, they couldn't water their gardens, and they wanted something done about it. And it yeah. t- takes that physical relationship to make change, and that's what happened. And the yeah. second thing happened that in that same year was the reinsurance industry kind of came out after some major storms and, and, and globally and said, look, we've done the maths on this and we're, we're, it's costing us so much to cover major weather events and it's going off the charts and it's mm. much faster growth in liability than, than the, the, the value of the assets. And so you can debate all you like whether you think climate change is real or not. But for us, it's real. It's real. Yeah. And so we're just going to change the way we assess capital risk. And so the financing sector, the banking sector, everybody said, okay, we get that now. So business just moved. Like, and blindsided John Howard in Australia, they blindsided yep. everybody. In 2006, they said, okay, this is a risk we need to manage. It's on. Done, yeah. And it's done. And so you would expect then, you would expect like the conservative side of politics with their major constituent going, okay, business now thinks this is real. We yeah. therefore go to we join the party. And you can see that they have really struggled with this. Yeah. Well, business groups, the Business Council of Australia, the energy sector I work for, have been in lockstep saying, please, can we have a price on karma? Can we have clear defining policy? Because we need to be able to invest around this. And you, you have this sort of conservative element still hanging on to the idea that this is a fraud. Right. This is some sort of, you know, this is some construct. That, and, they, and really, it's, they just see it as one of a number of virtue signalling of political correctness. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that is destroying the debate in Australia to, as we speak. So we now have a, a political debate with one side sort of oscillating between promising new coal-fired power stations, which will never happen, mm. and the other side sort of promising even more rooftop solar and more toys, which are creating so many technical problems for the grid. Yes. And, and we're not having the real debate about how can we just make this thing work, work properly, <laughs> properly yeah. and how do, what can consumers actually do that's effective and how do we manage it so that the thing works uh, without having to keep debating its merits. Yeah. And that's where we're at right now. Yeah, so... Getting to this point right now, I suppose, where we've just had 10 years of just uh, sniping by either side on, on sort of how to effectively manage the, the energy market and, and climate policy as well. It seems, uh, and again, you, you describe it in the book, that um, at that point, just post-2006, uh, Kevin Rudd was elected on a, um, a heavy climate agenda in 2007. Uh, Barack Obama was coming to power on a, with a climate agenda. Um, the business councils and business around the world were, were sort of starting to espouse that uh, this was something that needed to be paid attention to. And then the global financial crisis happened and basically shut down the entire debate. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's sort of almost forgotten in the narrative. In, within the industries and the debate in early 2008, everyone was talking about emissions trading schemes, linking them globally. It was just a this whole progression was moving very rapidly and quite yeah. successfully. Everyone, smart people can solve these technical problems quite happily. And then the GFC hit. And that basically, I mean, it was we, we rode through it in Australia, but its impact on climate policy and climate action was catastrophic. Yeah. So 
uh, Obama was elected, but he basically had the choice of which shot did he did he go for healthcare or climate change, and he went for healthcare. Yeah. Um, Rudd was expecting everybody to kind of get to Copenhagen in two thousand and nine and have yeah. this great sort of love in, and the thing fell to pieces. The Europeans had an emissions training scheme in. They basically sort of let it go and let the price fall to zero. Yeah. Because the lower income economies just couldn't afford a price on carbon because they were struggling so bad. You know, unemployment rates of twenty seven percent in Spain. And yeah, yeah. So they just went okay, too hard for now and all that momentum was lost yeah. and in a sense we still have a european carbon price which is beginning to recover but it's taken a 10 years yeah and we have a the us have never ever brought a bill uh for emissions trading or anything like that to congress so we still have this incredible uh damage caused by that sort of that momentum loss from that event which was nothing to do with climate change yeah and then, and then i guess uh what became australia's response in that time after that was um uh, the promotion of uh, of solar power on a consumer level, uh, and there has been some um, uh, investment in renewable energy as well, uh, which we've seen uh, particularly in, in South Australia and the like. Uh, so, starting with the the consumer um, response to uh, to climate change and to uh, and to power, the the, the big rollout, um, government sponsored rollout of solar power. How has that affected um, the uh, the energy market? Well, I mean, the first thing is. Uh, rooftop solar is really weirdly Australian. Yeah. So we, we think of it as being normal and that everyone has it, but in around the world, as the rest of the world looks at our consumption of rooftop solar mm. uh, and thinks that we're nuts. Yeah, right. uh, So And it's kind of a coincidence of events. So basically uh, the, the first trigger of it was the GS, GST. Mm-hmm. And when John Howard was negotiating a deal on the GST back at, in 1999, the Australian Democrats, who were hold the balance of power and supported the, the passage of it, one of their conditions was a little bit of money for a little scheme to yep. put rooftop solar on people's roofs. Now, at that time, solar was really expensive and a handful of, like a few hundred people kind of signed up for the scheme and they were just interested boffins with lots of money and, and interested in the technology. Yep. Um, and solar itself should have been on this journey it had basically been developed in the 50s by um, uh, by telephony businesses in the US to mm-hmm. as, as a way of accidentally sort of discovered it by accident as a way of powering the remote locations and it oh, kind okay. of found its journey through telecom in Australia for r- microwave repeater stations and satellites in space so yeah you know they when they stuck it in the satellites the satellites produced a signal for seven and eight years rather than two weeks so yeah okay <laughs> it's kind of you know and we might older people might remember the skylab event which mm. was a major space station which basically nearly di- died because one of the solar panels ripped off on, on launch right so solar was really integral to that but it was still a space age technology in the turn at the, at the start of the millennium and so it was falling in price and uh, and there's this little scheme tickling along and no one was really paying any notice to climate change and then solar just kept falling in cost as changes in the production of it and they shifted from different types of silicon and and it, we had this coincidence where john howard was being blindsided uh, on being smashed to pieces by kevin rudd and yes. in 2007 in the lead up to the election he grabbed the only sort of functioning energy renewable program he sort of had going said let's just turn this thing to 11 so he offered <laughs> eight thousand bucks for per household for yeah. solar panels and 
And the thing just lit like a Christmas tree, you know, mm. and every state government was out there doing feed-in tariffs. Everybody wanted to be in on it because it was it worked politically. So yep. the two things with solar were it was being bought by not affluent households but homeowners and they tended to be in sort of marginal electorates. So yep. they tend to be in, in sort of outer suburbs because they were very price conscious. Yeah. Uh, and so you had all these people buying solar. Uh, they were in marginal electorates uh, and it was very tangible. Like so... And, I, you know, I used to work in the waste debate, and the, one of the reasons why curbside recycling is so popular is it's mm. tangible. Right. People like environmental change that they can see and touch and feel. And putting solar panels on your roof, you feel like you're buying smart new technology, your neighbours think you're cool, yeah. you save your money and power, but you're doing something for the environment, it's got yeah. this tactile nature to it. And the industry, you know, when you think about, like, new industries, people spend millions and millions of dollars sort of product testing and and market researching and we created a multi-billion dollar consumer product just like that <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's now going so fast i mean we and we kind of think it's cute and fun the problem with it from a technical perspective mm. is it's like this black ops power station right which is now running and the market operator can't see what it's doing and when it's producing but it, we know it's out there mm -hmm. and it's going at such a rate that it's it's going to be, you know, we, we, it's now under minimum demand conditions. Places like Perth are going to be running on pure rooftop solar by the middle of the next decade. Wow. And that requires a whole brand new suite of technologies and thinking just to keep the lights on. It's, okay, right. It's, it's not like a like-for-like -like replacement. It's quite fra it's fragile. Yeah. It can be made to work. But So we're kind of creating all these new headaches just because nobody's ever sort of said, hang on, can we just manage this solar so thing a bit better? It. Just get it into the places. Let's encourage it into where we need it a bit more. Let's let's not indulge it so much until mm. we can manage it better let's get batteries to go in with it whatever we think we need but politically no government wants to stand in the way of a, of a swinging voter and a new solar system yeah yeah and so we have this crazy you know, the grid is getting gradually harder to manage voltages are going up so mm -hmm. some of the power's not getting on there's all these problems emerging and nobody wants to talk about it so from a, I guess from a consumer's perspective, you, you feel like you're doing the right thing. I mean, here I am, I'm, I might live in an affluent suburb, I've got my solar panels on my roof, uh, my, my neighbours have all got solar panels on their roofs, and clearly we're not part of the problem, we're part of the solution. But uh, what you're saying is actually, no, we're, we're some part of the solution, but we're actually creating more problems. Well, yeah, and it, but I don't think it's up to consumers to make those decisions. But mm. that there's, you know, I would always recommend if you're going to go and buy solar, that the most important thing to do is to test the voltage in your street because right. we've some of the recent studies done where on what we call virtual power stations, where you put batteries and solar in parts of Adelaide and you start to coordinate households in, like a power station, which is what we should be doing. Yeah, um, the voltage half the houses in those trials, the voltage is so high in the street from all the rooftop solar in parts of Adelaide and parts of Brisbane and Melbourne that um, the, the the pressure in the which is voltage is basically the pressure of the electricity. Yeah, it's so high that any new solar can't get on because there's so much pressure in oh, the street. Okay, right. And so what we, you know what we need to be doing. The sort of simple solutions are we need to have smart inverters that are providing data back to the grid operator so that we can see what solar systems are doing. Because mm. if a cloud comes over your solar system and your neighbour's solar system, they just die. They just Nothing. fall off a cliff. And at scale, that becomes extremely unstable to manage. So yeah, we, yeah. We, so we need some rules about sort of basic monitoring of solar. It would be better if we could start saying solar can only go in if it goes in with a battery yep and that of course is a lot more expensive and yep. a lot less lucrative but whatever the solutions are we need a bit more guidance on it but I, I don't think we should you know there's no 
people aren't doing a bad thing by putting solar in. It's clearly it is going to be a ubiquitous technology, and it's yeah. it is going to be everywhere in the twenty first century. It's probably among the cheapest ways of making electricity on Earth today. Yeah, and it's gone from being one of the most expensive to the cheapest. It's made of silicon, which is which is not scarce. Mm-hmm. So we can expect to see solar and wind, um, you know. Uh, everywhere through this century that's 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 a, that's a given um what they've done of course is they've basically wiped out all the other renewable technologies yeah so i was going to ask so the other renewable technologies i mean solar wind most people know about um hydro to a large extent people know about as well uh but uh, what about so you do describe the some of the others uh, such as wave technology tidal technology uh, biofuel and particularly the one i'm inter- interested in is geothermal because for a long time we were being told that geothermal was going to be the answer to all of our problems and what happened there well, um, so all the other te- the problem all technologies have that are sort of competing in this space, especially intermittent renewables like like wave. Mm. Wave energy is basically just wind energy collected in the ocean, yeah. and the ocean's a tough place to do business. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what we found is, you know, and there there are amazing ideas about collecting wave energy, and they've all almost every business, including I think Carnegie Wave in Perth, most recently, mm. they've all gone broke because. They just can't find a way of collecting that energy and compete with wave energy, wind energy, which is right. what their direct competitor is. Yeah. So, okay, you've just you're out of the game. And now with geothermal, its great offering was it could run as a firm generator, which means you could turn it on and off, which is incredibly desirable. Yeah. In this intermittent grid, um, the problem is uh, in Australia, the there's geothermal. Geothermal energy is basically catch, using the heat buried beneath the the Earth's surface. In Australia, the 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 all you know, the heat bodies are sort of four or five kilometres underground, mm. and the technique to get the heat out involves drilling a five kilometre deep hole, which costs around fifteen million dollars <laughs> a throw, and then another one, which is another fifteen million bucks, and then <laughs> and then you stick water down one of the holes, and the pressure drives hot, ste- hot steamy water back up, and you use that to power, run turbines. Mm. What could go wrong? Um, <laughs> and of course, this, what they found is that the geology down there wasn't exactly what they thought it was, and they just couldn't get the water to circulate. And so they, you know, it didn't work. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, and and I think we need to, when you so in researching the book, when you look at any sort of area of new innovation and invention, most things fail. Right. Like failure is the norm. Like yeah. it is the absolute norm. So it's always frustrating when we have an energy debate where someone says, "Oh, this is amazing new technology. It's mm. going to change everything." And you go, "Well, just add that to the list of all the other amazing new technologies that failed for for very valid reasons. You know, they didn't." couldn't get down in cost or they couldn't solve technical problems and we accept that that's that failure is a normal part you know we talk about fusion energy which yes. is sort of this almost unthinkably complex way of creating energy from smashing molecules together mm. uh, and it the joke on in the energy debate is it's always 30 years away you know so so you do have to frame policy around things that actually are proven and work because we welcome anything that disrupts that. You know, we could be having, uh, there could be new technologies that make wind and solar redundant. Mm. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Yeah. So, but right now we have to build a grid with what we've got. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I guess talking about Australia then specifically because uh, you, you do mention that geothermal is quite a viable uh, energy generation method in other countries. Um, and similarly, uh, Australia's um, hydroelectric schemes are pretty much at their capacity. That's not really – so it's not a one-size-fits-all method of generation for, for all countries and for all markets as well. Yeah, it's, it's again, one of the frustrations. There's this perception that is peddled in Australia that we're laggards, mm. that Australia is somehow dragging the chain. And that, that, that's true in terms of some, some specific policy measures. But I would have to say Australia is unquestionably 
world-leading pioneer of integrating intermittent renewables at scale. Right. So South Australia, I call it an accidental experiment. Yeah, South yeah. Australia, I mean, I, we, I, I used to work for the electricity industry and we would have these sort of regular catch-ups with our international colleagues and we'd sit around the table and I'd present on where South Australia's at. And yeah. just, this is the CEOs of the biggest energy companies in the world. Eyes like dinner plates. Yeah. How the hell are you making that thing work? Yeah, so, wow. so South Australia is really cutting edge. Perth is going to be cutting edge with rooftop mm. solar running the grid. You know, we've had trials, fascinating sort of experiments in places like King Island in Bass Strait, which is deliberate. Hydro Taz has deliberately run that as a as a test bed to see what you need to do, and they can get renewables to about sixty five percent. Okay. Now that's what well, that's the best in the world. Yeah. So when people are out in the public debate going, we need to go to 100% renewables by 2030. You know, anyone who knows this is well. How about okay. we get to 65? Right. And because we, we know go, we can do that and there. go from there. Yeah. And, and 65 would be really cool. We don't mm. know how to do 100. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that's you know. But Australia, we had an accidental experiment in Alice Springs where it was made a solar city, and it's just had chronic blackouts for, for almost seven years because. Okay. Nobody bothered to think through the technical requirements to support all that solar going to a small isolated grid. Now, right. that's a great opportunity to now to, you know, let's we, we'd probably be best advised to use Alice Springs as a trial to get it to a sort of very high levels and 100% solar so we can then take that and scale it up and stick it into Perth. Right. So, you know, we, we're doing all this while the rest of the world is still kind of, you know, connected to each other and running nuclear and hydro. And mm. They don't have the same technical challenges we do yeah. because we're having to shut down coal and replace it with renewables and we don't really have... The only other option we've got is nuclear. Yeah. And I think the debate, you know, and I mentioned in the book, to be really honest... Australians will consider nuclear power, I think, if you've demonstrated you've really tried everything with renewables and you it can't get there. Yeah. And I think so that's a debate for another 10 years. And I yeah. think we have 10 years to road test a high renewables grid and see what we can do. And if we make mm. it work in Australia, then that can be applied in other parts of the world. And, and it will be sort of pioneering that kind of technology globally. So in terms of uh, the situation in Australia now and uh, and where it's headed or, or at least where it where it could be headed, we're, we're at a stage where we've got no choice. We are going to have to decommission some of these old coal-fired plants. Uh, they're what they what uh, are what prevert, uh, sorry what provide for us right now. And um, and you mentioned this a, a, a couple of times actually that uh, we misuse the term baseload quite a lot, but they provide more of a, um, a firm power in the grid that uh, that gives us uh, the ability to, to run when, um, when uh, the intermittent renewables aren't able to run in times of cloud cover or low wind and, and the like. So in order to replace these, uh, th- these coal-fired power stations, then what would, you, what would you suggest that we use to, uh, to create that firm power? Yeah, I mean, uh, the term baseload is hopelessly abused. It, as it's used, I think, as if you have to have baseload power stations. Yeah. Baseload is simply a, t- a technique. Like it's a... So Coal and nuclear are baseload generators, which means once you turn them on, they take days to turn on, and mm-hmm. once they're on, they need to stay on. Yeah, and and so that's fine. And that's that was worked perfectly when you had mainly baseload power stations. France runs nuclear mm-hmm. like that, no sweat, and they can dial up and down just like a combustion heater. You know, you can let air in and out, and you can turn it up or down within a range, and that's yeah. how they work. The problem with they are completely incompatible with renewables right. because renewables, as we've seen in South Australia, renewables surge. So renewables yeah. can produce enormous amounts of electricity and then nothing yeah. and then enormous amounts and nothing. And 
Uh, so what you, if you're going to run high renewables, you basically end up putting the, the Northern Power Station in South Australia closed, not because it was a, an old coal power station, but because it couldn't cope with high renewables. Okay. Um, and it basically the owners tried everything they could to try and keep that thing going, but they had to keep turning it off and on. And a coal-fired power station just does Doesn't not work like that. Like that. Yeah. And so in the end, they closed it because they just they basically it was losing money. Um, then it's not suited to running with renewables. So mm. you need technologies that complement renewables, things that jump in quickly and jump out quickly. Now, yeah. hydro is perfect. Hydro's problem is we just don't have that much water and we're at, as you said, at capacity on hydro. Yeah. Um, Batteries are really well suited, but I mean, people have this really weird view of batteries as if, you know, the battery in South Australia is absolutely, it's the world's biggest lithium-ion battery, yeah. but it's tiny in the scale of the grid. Right. So batteries are, batteries are actually the, unlikely to be at any time soon being used for bulk power, but they're fantastic at supporting renewables and stabilising the grid. So they're going to play a key role in what we call ancillary services. So mm -hmm. you'll see lots of batteries going in. They'll be, they'll be used increasingly, but there's still there's a huge gap there, which is this supply of bulk power. Mm -hmm. And that's the debate really is we can use gas for that now. There's a new, uh, new, new style of gas generators which can jump in and out quickly. Um, we talk about pumped hydro and hydrogen and all these different approaches of trying to find large amounts of, of energy that yeah. can jump in and out around renewables that use the surplus energy from renewables to, to source their power. Now, pumped hydro is is kind of really, we use it today. It's not a new technology. Yeah. It's pretty obvious. You know, you've got a hydro dam. When the water gets released, instead of letting it go down the river, you catch it, you pump it back, back up and up. you go again. Mm -hmm. Sounds easy very expensive to build yeah. of course loses power because it requires energy to get back up to get hill. back up there so and you're losing all these energy in the processes of doing that but if you've got enough cheap energy and you can in certain locations yes it's a goer mm -hmm. can you build enough pumped hydro to actually sort of run a, a, you know, a, a large country like australia the the difficulty on that is in a flat place like australia is the energy the maths on hydro is really simple. It's mm. the the fall is the amount of water, the, the height the water falls from. So, the snowy 2.0 is up in the mountains. It can it can do all this. It has a big fall. So yes, that all works. Yep. The problem is the, the the engineering to get the water back through those high mountainous passes is extremely expensive and that's the debate yeah. about snowy it's not that it's yeah. a bad idea it's that how much will it cost to build it mm -hmm. and so you can put these pumped hydro everywhere but they have their very small fall they produce very small amounts of energy so you know that's why we're debating hydrogen which is really and everyone uses the word hydrogen but i'm sure almost nobody listening knows what that means mm. and hydrogen is just really simple simply um uh, if you've got extra electricity, you stick two electrodes in water and you electrolyze it and you separate the hydrogen and the oxygen. Uh -huh. And then you capture the hydrogen and you've got a fuel. You right. can make, yeah, yeah. you can put it into fuel cells, yep. you can burn it as a gas. Yep. Obviously, you know, it's very volatile, but you've got an energy source. Yeah. And so in theory, you know, we're starting from scratch, but you could run hydrogen powered turbines mm -hmm. to run when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. Yeah. So that's terrific. We really needed to be doing this 10 years ago. <laughs> we, we're starting from now as a really bad place to start on hydrogen. Yeah. But we need to get our skates on. Mm -hmm. because. But the idea of exporting hydrogen, like, I think, first of all, let's try, we don't need to export it. We need, we to, need use to actually it use it ourselves. Yeah. So let's get on with you know seeing what it can do. We can shandy it in now mm -hmm. and 
with the existing gas network and we can make gas less carbon intense by okay. having hydrogen blended in. Mm-hmm. So there's all this kind of, you know, really important, aggressive, advanced thinking on hydrogen that needs to be taking place and we and we should be having a debate and R&D on hydrogen right now. So yeah. let's do that. But in the meantime, we've, we've got to enable the, the renewables to keep going and to firm them in some capacity. Yeah. And logically, that's going to be gas as the main oh, okay, supporter yeah. of, hydrogen, of, of renewables. Now, of course, the problem with that is Gas has been demonised yes. <laughs> in the debate for you know, and this is this comes from environment groups who saw that gas was the, the first switch for from coal to gas in places like the US, and they said, "Oh, well, this keeps going. We're just going from one fossil fuel to another." Mm. It does have half the emissions. It's much more flexible. It's a crucial technology to enable renewables. The faster we can not use gas, the better. Yep. But we have to keep the lights on until we can get there. Right. And I think this is the kind of mature debate we're not having. We're sort of yeah, we're yeah. shutting down gas development while we're talking about putting in renewables in. And anyone who knows how this is going to work says that you can't you do can't that. You can't replace one with the other. They complement each other. But by all means, you know, but this isn't a campaign to have gas running forever. And, mm. and most gas businesses the big gas developers, Shell and Origin, they're all aggressively trying to find out what they can do with hydrogen because they know that's their future if they're going to be in business. Yeah. So no one's this is this idea that businesses are trying to stop change is is not credible. Yeah. But we've also got to be realistic and say that the public won't support the transformation unless they can see it's done without too much pain and cost. Yeah. And that's kind of the balancing act that we need to be embracing as opposed to pretending we're going to build a coal-fired power station in far north Queensland, which mm. really bears no purpose in, in, except for political rhetoric yeah so of the politics of it what you've sort of uh described i guess is that we're coming from a, a system uh, an electricity system or an energy system where we had one main source of energy uh which uh, at the time um was was government owned and controlled and then obviously became privatized uh and now we're moving that the energy market in the future is actually going to be a number of different sources of energy uh that uh, that, w- that need to be regulated uh in some way so you uh, and I, you, you do mention in the book you're advocating for a um, for a body to actually be to govern the energy market um, in terms of its uh, of the the various uh, methods of generation supply and uh, and the like. We have these like there's these um, there's these agencies. There's called the market operator, a commission, a regulator. They're already there now, yeah. And they're brainy people uh, who do this. 24-7 day in day out and they think about energy and they regulate it and and it's just really coordinating them together because I think we need to be realistic uh, anyone inside the industry is frustrated by the politicization of electricity and energy policy in Australia but it's not going to change yeah and so in a sense if we, we should need to embrace that and say what do we what models work for us so when back in the 80s when we had runaway inflation we created we sort of emboldened the reserve bank and made it separate and standalone and the Reserve Bank was given the ability to set interest rates without political interference, and that worked. Mm-hmm. And so today, most of us you know, have a vague understanding of monetary policy and interest rates, but yeah. when the governor of the Reserve Bank says something, we go, he's independent or she's independent. Yeah. We listen to them, we respect them, and, and they kind of gently move the dial and, and they, run that, they run that show. And that's what we need with this. We right. need a Reserve, Bank of, a Reserve Bank which kind of runs the grid and yeah. runs the system and says, look, these give us the targets. We'll go and make way and make this work. And and what we need to be sort of embracing is the conversation about what Australia does for a living in the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. So we're you know twentieth century. Our major exports are, are coal and, and natural gas, and clearly the coal side of it, but the gas too is going to be challenging in the back half of the twenty first century. So if we want to maintain our standard of living, we need to be thinking about what do we do in manufacturing? How do we? What do we do with the existing manufacturing businesses? What 
what can we adapt to meet this different style of energy that we're going to be using in the 21st century? Uh, how do we work? You know, mm. we, we all kind of commute in it. We, we work inside an electricity system which has unlimited electricity all the time. Yeah. But we may start finding that business, some businesses, for example, uh, start operating more around when there's wind and sunshine and less around the traditional working hours and that mm. there's more flexible work, which might be great for traffic and great for commuting. Yeah. But we need to be thinking about that because, you know, that's that's okay. Like it mm. may actually be some benefits in ad- adapting the way we live. Yeah. Um, and we're not having these kind of mature, advanced conversations. We're just bickering about ideology and sort of symbolism yeah and these are really interesting conversations because you know it, we're, the germans are already looking at aluminium smelting and seeing ways in which smelters can adjust to varying electricity flows okay and we can do this with a whole range of metal processing which we mm. do in australia we could be world leaders mm. in these technologies because we're going to have to apply them first or we can stumble along like we are and then in 30 years buy the technologies from the Japanese and the Germans and think, yeah. well, we could have built that ourselves if we'd bothered. Yeah. And that's really that's the, the question that faces us now. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to break this deadlock of ideology to say, look, th- this is really important and we're going to lead the world in re- integrating renewables. That poses both challenges and enormous opportunities. If we embrace it, we may find ourselves a really smart and, and blessed in many ways as an mm. economy. If we get it wrong, we're going to lose the standard of living that we have today and, and be importing sort of solutions from others yeah and we miss that boat yeah um the danes the danes are well known as being pioneers of wind turbine technology yeah the way they got that gig was simply there, there were some some renewables policies in the u.s after the opec oil crisis in the 70s and some u.s businessmen just went to europe looking for somebody to build them wind turbines mm-hmm. These were these businesses were Danish agricultural machinery manufacturers, right. and they kind of said, "Yeah, we'll give it we'll a give go." go. You know? <laughs> and that's where Vestas and 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 the business that, that got bought by Siemens came mm. from, and they're now the world leaders in wind turbine technology. Right. So, so they took their opportunity. The opportunities are there. So why don't we do the same? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that that brings us to now, right now, and here we are. We're we're right on the eve of an election. Um, would you say then what you've seen so far that uh, there's been anything from either, either of the major parties in regards to energy and the environment that's, uh, that seems like it's a well-founded policy or are they still just shooting from the hip? I mean, it's, it's, it now is... Uh, uh, you've got the coalition a split. Uh, they, they are stuck between trying to appeal to the right and the nationals who who holding this ideological view that climate change is a nonsense, just let's have coal. Yeah. Uh, Building a new coal-fired power station will not change anything on electricity prices until 2026. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of it, – it's not going to happen. Um, Labor on the other side is is sort of terrified of talking about carbon pricing because it's a political killer. <laughs> it was so damaging last time. Even yeah. though it would have been a great idea mm-hmm. and they, when they did it the first time and it was well executed back then. Um uh, you know, look, it's, use, it's useful to talk about things like electric cars. Um, Australia, you know, electric cars will be welcome. The problem mm. with electric cars is they're expensive. Yeah. I mean, I, I think many people listening would, would love to buy an EV if mm. they could get basically the same kind of performance from their petrol car um, at a similar price. Yeah. At, and I'm included. And, I, you know, Volkswagen have this amazing combi, which is an, right. a, a combi EV. I mean, it just... I want one so badly, <laughs> but they are not making it because they can't get the cost down to the price point where they know that people like me will buy it. Yeah, and so 
it's. I mean, I think it's important to talk about EVs, and and I, I think you need critical mass. Mm. If you have ten thousand EVs in Melbourne, ten thousand EVs in Sydney and Brisbane, any city, they look after themselves. The yeah. charging stations get put in by by businesses, and it's all yeah. away. So I think we should have that conversation, but we shouldn't promise things that we no, can't deliver. No, no. I just think. Look, I would. We really want this to get out of the political headlights and go, you know, it would be great if after the election, whoever wins and whatever happens, that sort of we have a, a moment of detente and we say, look, for God's sake, we can't keep doing this. Mm. And maybe that, that's the chance. And then we, sort of, we set up the institutions that can run this transformation and we, we also kind of hold ourselves to account. So there's lots of people out there promising things that aren't remotely credible. Um, mm. They need to be held to account. You know, yeah. good ideas need to be encouraged. Silly ideas need to be called out for silly ideas. Yeah. And it's so confusing to the, to the ordinary public out there that if somebody, you know, there are businesses out there who've been promising to build brand new power stations and things, and then every six months they're, they're out there again with another press release, and it never happens. Yeah, and so yeah. we just need to, we need to sort of stop this and say, look, this is important. You know, it's, it's a transformation. It's doable, but it requires kind of cool heads, and we need to be having the right conversations about which are the important, how do we retain the important jobs manufacturing how do we grow new businesses mm -hmm. and how do we do this so that people's power bills don't go through the roof yeah and then and from a household perspective you know smart metering and solar and batteries are all incredibly useful things that will be more ubiquitous through the 21st century mm -hmm. how do we deploy them so that everybody not just homeowners gets to use them you know because yeah. there's 30 percent of people renting who never get any of this hand this is very true and uh <laughs> And uh, you know it's and they're among there are many of them are low income households mm -hmm. and we there's there is no one ever talks about how we protect vulnerable households in the transformation and how they can enable these technologies. So yeah. there's a lot of sort of important serious stuff which is less populist that that we need to be talking about yeah. instead of kind of headline grabbing issues that neither the politicians talking about nor the media reporting really understand. Yeah. Well, he's hoping that uh, that after the election, perhaps the climate can settle down, the, the political climate can settle down to a point where we can have a sort of measured and mature and, and forward-thinking discussion. Well, thanks so much, uh, Matthew. Now, one last thing I, I do I do need to ask you, because we do ask this of all of our guests, um, is uh, what are you watching, what are you reading, or what are you listening to right now? Uh, I don't watch a lot of television. Um, uh so I, I really I, I struggle if there's anything I'm watching. I, I've been reading Madeleine Albright's book on fascism. Oh wow, which I think's terrific. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, stunning. It's 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 incredibly impressive to somebody to have such a high public profile, but mm. who is so articulate. Mm. Uh, and it's a very beautifully written and clearly thought through, and you know, very timely, um, a timely book as well. So that's kind of that's. And I, I look, I'm also. Um, I'm reading a book on Socrates, oh, <laughs> which is again, it's sort of fascinating to trying to, you know, Socratic thinking and the, the, the where he came from and the, the nature of Socratic thinking. So, yeah, um, yeah so I tend to read nonfiction. Yeah, uh, yeah, fair enough. A little bit of fiction. I do, I do, you know, I, beautiful books, but I, I tend to find myself reading nonfiction just yeah. for various reasons. And I, I don't watch and I don't. I listen. I've just bought some African music, but I, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, no, so nothing, nothing profound there. That's okay. No, that's absolutely fine. Well, well thank you very much again. Uh, you've been listening to Matthew Warren discuss his amazing new book, Blackout, which is available from all readings stores. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast on our website, readings.com.au, where you'll also find news, reviews and interviews and information on our current book, music and DVD releases. You can even sign up to our newsletter, The Readings Monthly. <laughs> <laughs>